As we continue here in our series in the Gospel of Mark, we'll endeavor to finish our studies here in Mark uh, right just before Christmas. Mark chapter 14. This morning I'll be reading, starting at verse 12 and going through verse 25. Mark chapter 14. If you're able to, please stand as I read. Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes, and it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is God's word for us today. You may be seated. Join me in prayer. Our great God and heavenly Father, help us to love you with our heart, our soul, our strength, and all of our mind this day. Give us grace, Lord, to think clearly. And Father, that's not always easy for us because we can be bombarded with all kinds of thoughts, distracting thoughts, impure thoughts, selfish thoughts, God-honoring thoughts all at the same time. Lord, I pray, even as we think about our own lives and our own families and our church, and this life that you have called us to, our hearts are drawn to events all over the world. And so we hear and we read and we are burdened, Lord, by wars, particularly in Israel. God, have mercy on those who have lost loved ones, for, for lives that have been damaged. God, comfort those who are mourning. Father, we pray for wise leaders. We pray for peace. Lord, somehow we pray that in your wise sovereignty that you will use, use this for good. Lord, we, it's hard for us to, to know what that looks like, but, but we're
we're not you. And so we're learning to pray, Lord, not our will, but yours be done. And Lord, we're learning to pray that in our context here as well and in our lives. And we certainly pray that now in these moments that we have together. Lord, not my will, not our will, but your will be done. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I have a good friend who suffers with pretty regular bouts of vertigo. And if you don't know what vertigo is, he, he describes it as standing completely still, and yet the world around you is spinning. And perhaps some of you know what that's like. People with vertigo will sometimes say like they're just being pulled in this direction only to be yanked back in this direction. And then the swaying and the tilting and the spinning just intensifies. And sometimes it's many, many moments, even hours before it ends. So it's not very fun, as you can imagine. Throws off your equilibrium. My friend at one point said to me, you know what, Jeff, I, I try not to make any major life decisions when my world seems to be spinning out of control. That seems to be some pretty wise counsel, doesn't it? We live in a broken world. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And so we approach our lives with certain expectations of what we think life should look like. We expect our bodies to behave in certain ways. We expect the world to run in a certain way. Our friends, our relationships, they're all supposed to follow a particular pattern. And when that doesn't happen, sometimes then the spinning begins. We're thrown off. Our spiritual equilibrium is upset. There, there's kind of a spiritual vertigo that if you live long enough as a Christian, you'll face it. Where you're not quite sure, is this ever going to end? Will my feet have solid ground? Sometimes you can feel like a pinball. Just being pushed and pulled and yanked and then you're just kind of doing this for a whole long time. And it's tempting in those moments, it's really tempting to lose confidence in the people around you. What's even more, it's tempting to doubt what you know to be true. It's really hard sometimes to find that solid ground for your feet. And in my own bouts with this sort of spiritual vertigo, I think the one thing that I've learned is that control and me being in control is a facade. It's not true. And so what's, what's hard, brothers and sisters, is sometimes when you feel like your, your world is kind of spinning a little bit too fast, we inevitably ask the question, well, if I'm not in control, and if I can't control this, then who can? Is anybody in control? And so I hope that this passage here in Mark chapter 14 will be a great encouragement for you and for your soul this morning. I don't know what the past 24 hours of your life was like. And I certainly cannot predict what the next 24 hours of your life will be like. But I can say, on the authority of God's word, as we read it here in the Gospel of Mark, even if your world this morning, right now, is spinning a bit too fast for your liking, none of us will ever have a 24-hour like Jesus did. Because our text here in Mark roughly describes the last 24 hours of Jesus' earthly life. And on that last day, evil plot from the ruling religious elite, that will succeed. They'll kill Jesus. Yes, he's going to eat a Passover meal. 
Yes, a friend will betray him. His own disciples will abandon him. He'll be put on trial, delivered to Pilate. Peter will deny him. The Roman authorities will render judgment against him. He will be mocked. He will be scorned. He will be dragged through the streets, treated like a common criminal. And eventually, all of that leads to his brutal crucifixion on the cross. And what Mark and all the other gospel writers make clear is that everything that I just described there, everything that we read here in our Bibles, Jesus was in complete control of it all. Nothing surprised him. There was no shock for him. Jesus was in complete sovereign control of every detail of his last 24 hours here on earth. So even, as we'll see, even in his hours of greatest human need, Jesus remained the sovereign and ruling king through it all. Now you hear that and hopefully you affirm that, that's good, but you're thinking, well, why, do, why, do, why is that so important, Brinkman? I mean, it's important practically for the rest of my sermon. <laughs> Otherwise, we're all in deep weeds. But, but more than that, you, you well know, in the last 50, even in the last 100 years, many have looked at Jesus, and particularly the last few days of his earthly life, and they have sought to reimagine him. They've really sought to reinterpret the events here. No, Jesus is not really God. He, he's a guy who just, he, he was left just spinning uncontrollably. He couldn't stop evil men from doing things to him. He overplayed his hand. His best laid plans had gone awry. Whole doctoral dissertations have been written about this. The details just escaped him. His life was spiring out of control. He couldn't do anything to stop it. He's just a helpless victim. That's garbage. So don't believe a word of that. Because would you entrust your life to him if, if that really was the case? If that's the best that Jesus can do? Would that be a God that you would want to worship? Would you trust Jesus properly to care for you when your world seems to be spinning a little bit too fast if he couldn't even control his own? So what we see here, brothers and sisters, is that, that all four Gospels tell us that Jesus remains in complete sovereign control of everything that happened to him, particularly in the last 24 hours of his life. And I think that is what is such a great encouragement for us. When our world sometimes does seem to be spinning out of control, and we do ask and we do wonder, what's going to happen? What does tomorrow look like? What's the future look like? There's a, there's a landing spot. There's a safe place for our souls to rest. And that is not because we think somehow we are in control. That safe landing spot for our souls has to be in a God who is sovereign. And he's in control. And so I want you to see that here in this text. Jesus, as the true king that he is, is in complete control of all of the details of his life, even in his hour of greatest need. We see that in three ways. First, Jesus is in complete control of the details concerning the Passover meal. It's verses 12 through 16, and I'll read this. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where's my guest room where I may eat the Passover 
with my disciples, and he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepared for us. And the disciples set out, went to the city, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. I want you to notice the question in verse 12 from the disciples. The question is, Lord, where will you have us go and prepare for you? Like, where do you want to eat the Passover? Underneath that question is a whole lot of anxiety from the disciples. This is not, hey, Jesus, we're kind of hungry. Uh, we're thinking about supper. What sounds good to you tonight? No, they, they understand Jerusalem is teeming with people. They're all coming to town for the most important Jewish feast of the entire year. They also know that Jesus is a marked man. There's a price on his head. So where can they possibly go to eat this elaborate Passover meal where they can be safe, where they can be secure? And furthermore, the disciples know that they're supposed to eat this meal in six hours, eight hours, maybe ten. And they're looking around and they're saying, we don't see anything, Jesus. Like, do you, you do have a plan for this, right? Because we're not seeing anything at all. Now, for the party planners among us, it'd kind of be like waking up on Thanksgiving morning knowing that in about five to six hours, there's going to be 30 or 35 people coming to your house, your closest family and friends, and they're expecting a Thanksgiving meal. They're expecting turkey and mashed potatoes and gravy and pumpkin pie and Nana's rolls. But you don't have anything planned. In fact, your kitchen is in the middle of a remodel. And so you don't have pumpkin pie and you don't have turkey. You're going to be the turkey. And so your anxiety just grows by the minute. I mean, this Passover meal would normally take weeks to plan and prepare because it was such an elaborate, it was such a beautiful, moving ritual. I want to just paint the picture here, so bear with me with just some historical details here. This is, the, the Passover was all spelled out for the devout Jew uh, of, of what exactly was to take place and why. And so the the, the oral Torah, it's called the Mishnah, it dates back to A.D. 200. It's a collection of Jewish writings. There's a liturgy all laid out for a devout Jew to know, here's what we're supposed to do on the Passover. And so after initial blessings over the day and over the wine, it was really centered on four cups of wine, the first cup of wine is drunk. And then the traditional Passover food would be brought to the table. And that included unleavened bread, bitter herbs, stewed fruit, greens, got to get the vegetables in there, and the roast lamb. Now, after mixing the second cup of wine, the youngest son in the family would ask the patriarch. So he'd turn to his dad, and he'd say, Father, why is this night different from other nights? It's a great question, isn't it? What's going on here, dad? And in reply, the father then would take the time to recount the glory of God's grace in the Exodus. And he would really emphasize three main components of the Exodus story. Number one, the Passover. Because God passed over uh, the houses of our fathers in Egypt. He spared our lives. Number two, the unleavened bread. Because our fathers, forefathers, we had, they got out quickly. They left hastily. Didn't have time for the bread to rise. They were fleeing the Egyptians. And number three, the bitter herbs, because the Egyptians embittered the lives of our fathers and forefathers in Egypt. 
So the father would explain this to everyone sitting around the table. This would then be followed by the singing of the first part of the Hallel Psalms, the Hallelujah Psalms, Psalms 113 to 115. The father then would pronounce a blessing over the bread. He'd break it, and the bread would then be distributed to everyone sitting around the table. At that point, the main Passover meal would come. It would be eaten, including the unleavened bread and the the herbs and the, the fruit and the lamb. This was then followed by a third cup of wine. And then at that point, the whole family would gather and sing the second part of the Hallel Psalm, Psalm 116 to 118. The fourth cup of wine would then conclude the meal. It's really, it's beautiful in, in, in many respects. Breathtakingly beautiful. The time, the energy to plan and prepare. But you can understand then, with that kind of liturgy, with that kind of preparation, we can better understand the disciples' anxiety here as they're saying, Lord, like, we, we're, we're devout Jews. We, we understand what's going on here with the Passover, and we see nothing. Like, is Passover going to happen or not? Are you, are you going in a different direction with this, Lord? Little heads up. Worried and anxious about some important life details. Disciples living out the future, the next few hours, before it's actually arrived. Trying to figure out, Lord, there's 20 things that we need to do, but right now we're just kind of stuck, paralyzed. I don't know if I can do the next thing. Does any of that sound familiar at all? I mean, if we know ourselves and if we're honest, boy, that, that sounds like how many of us live from day to day, isn't it? with the normal everyday burdens and concerns and worries and fears. And what I want you to see, brothers and sisters, is that it's into that, into his disciples' fears and concerns about, are are we actually going to celebrate the most important Jewish feast? Jesus then speaks. That's where he meets them, right there. And he gives them a very detailed instruction and plan for his Passover. I mean, clearly Jesus had taken the time. He's got a well-thought-out plan. He tells two of his disciples, Peter and John, look, go into town. Here's what I want you to look for. A man carrying a jar of water. It's kind of, it seems like an odd detail, doesn't it? Like as Jesus is making sure his disciples are hydrated, look for the guy carrying the Stanley. No. What he's saying, only women carried jars of water in that day and age. Men didn't do that. So it's kind of a secret code here where Jesus is saying, look, when you see that guy carrying water, you're going to know that's the guy that's going to help you plan this Passover. You need to look for that guy carrying the jar of water because that's odd. That's unique. Everybody else is going to be kind of looking at the guy, but you're going to know that's the guy that you need to go talk to. He's going to take you. He's going to lead you to where you need to go. And evidently Jesus had made arrangements with a homeowner in Jerusalem. We don't know exactly that conversation. We're not told that. But he made arrangements for, to, to use his upper guest room for the meal. And so we read then verse 16. That is exactly what happened. No surprise. Verse 16, the disciples went to the city and they found it, that is the room, just as Jesus had told them. And they prepared the Passover. It's a Passover miracle. And yet the real miracle, brothers and sisters, of the Passover is not that Jesus had just planned every last detail so that his disciples need not worry and need not be afraid. 
the real miracle of the Passover was that Jesus himself would offer himself to be the sacrificial lamb, to deliver his people, to deliver the disciples who are worried and anxious and nervous, to deliver them from their sins. It would be his body crucified. It would be his blood that would be poured out for many. Now, none of, none of all of that elaborate ritual and the Passover and all the preparations, none of what we just read here makes any sense at all if Jesus is not in complete control of every detail, even details surrounding his own death. So brothers and sisters, a God who is in complete control, sovereign control, even when the foundations of his own earthly life is crumbling, is a God that you can trust to sustain you when it appears that life is just moving way too fast. When Maybe the foundations of your life seem to be crumbling around you. A God who has already thought through the details, a God who actually has a plan, and it's a good plan, ultimately to bless, that's a God that you can trust when you don't have a plan anymore or when your plans have dramatically changed. A God who has supernatural grace to give in that moment of Anxiety and worry and stress. When, when you're kind of going through that case of spiritual vertigo, that's a God to love, to worship, to adore, to follow faithfully. So yes, church, be very suspicious of your ability to control every last detail of your life and be absolutely and supremely confident in God who can do what you cannot that's the first thing we see here. Second, King Jesus maintains complete control over the announcement of his betrayal. I mean, Jesus really gets into the weeds, we might say. He's not just sovereign like big picture. He's sovereign and in control in the details, even over the announcement of his betrayer. This is verses 17 through 21. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, the one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It's one of the twelve, the one who's dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes, it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been Born. Now we learn from John's account, John chapter 13, that Jesus is in charge of all the details. No, there's no such thing as really a small detail for Jesus because John in John chapter 13 says that Jesus is in charge of the seating arrangement for this festive celebration. It was customary in that day everybody would recline at the table, which I don't know about you, but I think that's kind of a good idea. This next Thanksgiving, let's all recline around the table. I haven't said that to Becky yet, so we'll see where, what that happens. Uh, anyway, they're reclining around the table, which was customary. But, but the seating arrangement was such that Jesus' head would be at Judas's chest. John's head would be at Jesus' chest. And it was at that point that this celebration took a very surprising and actually a very dark turn. 
verse 18 of our text. John, well, sorry, John 13, 21, Jesus says, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And then Jesus unleashes a bombshell announcement, verse 18. One of you will betray me, one who is eating, the emphasis here is right here, right now, with me. That's a horrifying announcement. The specific wording that Jesus uses here seems to indicate that he's referring to Psalm 41, verse 1. He uses almost the exact same words. Psalm 41, verse 9 speaks of the traitor Ahithophel, who was a, a betrayed King David. These, these are good Jewish boys. They understand. They, they know their history. And so when Jesus says this, he's saying there's an Ahithophel among us, one who is eating bread right here, one who acts like a friend and says he is a friend, but actually who is going to be a traitor. Now again, Jesus knows. He knows exactly who is going to betray him. Not a surprise to him. But the disciples don't know. And of course, then their reaction is what we would expect. Are you talking about me, Lord? This, this is really sad. Is it me, Lord? You can imagine the tension of the scene and around the circle they go. Is it me, Lord? Is it him, Lord? Is it me? Including Judas. Now, you want to talk about some spiritual vertigo for those disciples where suddenly whew, their world is just spinning a little bit too fast. I mean, they're reclining at the table and, wow, everything seems to be out of whack. But Jesus, again, is not surprised. He's in complete charge. He knows the traitor is Judas. And you know, at this point, brothers and sisters, all Jesus had to do was to point at Judas and say, traitor. And you know what happens next? Peter lunges across the table, gets his big fisherman hands around the little neck of Judas, and he starts squeezing. But that's not what we read what happens. Jesus says in verse 20, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Now there's Several other people gathered there. It's not just the disciples. There's probably 30, 35 people there. So if you're a disciple at this point, you're thinking, okay, Lord, that's kind of helpful, but not. I mean, it's one of us, so hi, Mary. It's not you. Salome, nice to see you. It's clearly not you. Sarah, glad you could be here. Uh, Jesus, we don't really want to play this game. But here's what's going on. Here's what I want you to see. I want you to notice here that even in his moment of Deep personal betrayal. Jesus is offering Judas a way out. He's offering Judas a way out of his sin. I mean, this is King Jesus in complete control of all the details, including reaching out to Judas, his traitor, his betrayer, who is inches away from him. Now, I don't know about you, but I read that and I think that I don't know that I, I kind of have an idea of how I might respond in that moment. Man, this would be the time to get revenge. I'm going to ridicule this guy. I'm going to get angry. I'm going to shame him. But that's not exactly what happens here, is it? Not at all. Jude, uh, Jesus doesn't do any of that. Remember when 
Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Again, book of John records this. He also washed Judas' feet. And John records it well. He says, and you are clean, but not every one of you. So in that moment, Jesus is saying to Judas, Judas, my friend, you are not clean. It was a loving appeal to his sullied conscience. And yes, when Jesus, Jesus, sorry, Jesus alluded to Psalm 41, again, he was saying to Judas, Judas, it doesn't have to be like this. Your life doesn't have to end like Ahithophel. You have time to repent. And even the seating arrangement demonstrated the depth of Jesus' love for his traitor, for Judas. He had given Judas a place of honor right to his left. Jesus' head was inches from Judas's heart. It would have been the perfect opportunity for Judas to repent. He could have done it with a whisper. Nobody else even needed to hear. Judas asked Jesus for forgiveness. And yes, when Jesus dipped the bread and he gave it to Judas, yet again, Jesus was coming back to him saying, Judas, here is my friendship, here is my forgiveness. All you have to do is take it, my old friend. Will you? And, well, Judas took the bread, didn't he? But he didn't take it with repentance. He took it in arrogance. He took it with a hard heart. He shunned Jesus yet again. Jesus' offer of full and complete forgiveness to Judas was genuine. But Judas would have none of that. Had Judas repented in that moment, as as tension-filled as it was, he would have remained among the 12. I mean, some of you here know at least a little bit, maybe more than other of us, but some of you know that kind of pain and anguish that comes from the betrayal of a loved one. Close friend, a spouse, maybe a child. That, that sort of betrayal is it's life-altering, if not just life-changing. I mean, that's, that can be complicated on a number of levels. But in those moments, that's where it's so helpful, brothers and sisters, to think upon the, the mercies and the sympathy and, when I say the miseries, Puritans talk about that a lot, the miseries of Christ. In other words, Jesus gets that. He knows betrayal. Really, like, like none of us ever fully will. But he gets it. He understands. And he has grace to give you. He sympathizes with you. I love what Charles Spurgeon in a sermon once said this. He said, the sympathy of Jesus is the next most precious thing to his sacrifice. And if you find yourself or at one point in a situation similar, well, that is really where Jesus becomes even so much more precious to you. His sympathy to meet you in your great need. The Bible talks about that over and over again, that in Jesus Christ we have a high priest who is able to do what? Sympathize with us in our need, in our weakness, in our vulnerability. Jesus becomes very precious in those moments. This is an ugly moment. Let's just be honest. Let's call it what it is. 
it's ugly because we see the nature of sin in Judas's heart. And again, we, we see the nature of our own sin here. Last week, if you were here, I talked about how sin is really sticky. It is. It's sticky in that it not only deceives, it's sticky in that it then hardens. And it leads to a hardness of heart and an utter blindness of understanding which, which ignores even the last little bit of divine help or divine light as with Judas. Now, I know none of us here like to think of ourselves as having anything in common with this traitor Judas. But we know ourselves, do we not? We know our hearts. There are moments of clarity where, well, sometimes we, we know ourselves better than we actually admit or they actually confess. Every sin is an act of betrayal against King Jesus. That's the bad news. There is good news. And the good news that this is where the grace of the gospel shines even brighter. Because even those, in this situation, even those who betray King Jesus can experience his immediate and full, complete forgiveness of sins through repentance and confession of sin. Jesus knows exactly you're weak. He knows you. He loves you. He knows exactly the sins you're going to commit five minutes after you leave this church service. And he knows ten years from now. And on the cross, he died for all of your sins, past, present, and future. And so we read a verse like 1 John 1, 9. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins... What's going to happen next? If we confess our sins, he'll be faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to do what? And to cleanse us from most of it, a lot of it, the sins that he wants to forgive, but there's, there's, there's hell to pay from all, all of our unrighteousness, past, present, and future I'm not here to say you should have a favorite verse in the Bible, but you should have a favorite verse in the Bible. That ought to be it. Even in his betrayal, Jesus here remains in complete control. Now, if you're looking, brothers and sisters, uh, for one verse where we see his divine control, the sovereignty of God, and human responsibility, like where they meet and where they collide, look no further than verse 21. Because Jesus says, this is going to happen. As it's written, divine decree from God, I'm going to be betrayed, but I'll be betrayed by this man. So Jesus will be betrayed and crucified according to God's predetermined will. But that in no way relieves Judas of his culpability, of his responsibility, his guilt. So how do, how do we make sense of that? Well, that's a whole other sermon, several. Both of them are true. Yes, God is completely sovereign, and yes, Judas is absolutely responsible. And for mere mortals like us, yes, there is a mystery there that it's often hard to comprehend this side of eternity. But notice where Jesus goes here, and that's where we want to go, in terms of the human responsibility part. Notice what Jesus says of Judas. I mean, Jesus says it would be better for this man if he was actually never even born at all. You don't tend to hear stuff like that at a funeral. 
Like, even if the person who died was just a wretched, cranky old guy that had zero friends and four people show up to his funeral, one of the four will say something redeeming about him. But what Jesus says here about Judas is absolutely damning. I mean, he says it's possible. Words of Jesus, it's possible to live such a tragic and wasted life that, in fact, the world would have been better if you were not here. And we read that and we think, man, that doesn't seem very gracious, Jesus. It doesn't seem very merciful. What possibly can Jesus say to Judas at that point? Now, to be clear, brothers and sisters, this, this is not a blanket statement. There's an immediate context here. Jesus is not saying this to you in your time of need or when you're really struggling and you're, the world is just not making sense. That's not what he's saying. But to Judas here, after Judas had repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly shunned the love of Jesus for him, had spurned his offer of grace and to be forgiven, what more can Jesus say other than what he just says here? The point is Jesus is still king and he's still sovereign, even through those who oppose him and betray him. And this gets us to our third and final point. It's just King Jesus is in complete control of all the details of his last supper. Of his last supper. This is verses 22 through 25. I'll read it for us. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them. And he said, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is the blood of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. The scene is set. All the preparations have been made. This is what Jesus was living for, in fact. His whole life was leading to this moment. And after... Years of patient preparation, there's no more waiting. His mission on earth was about to be fulfilled. Jesus sets his face. He is heading now to the cross where he would suffer the terrible agony of the cross, be forsaken by God, his heavenly Father, for us. And so this Last Supper is is really, it's an acted parable here. Jesus is telling the story here. He's saying, all those who are gathered there, this is what I'm about to do. This is what I'm about to do for you. And yes, of course, he's still in charge. He's still in control of this, his last supper. And here's how we know that. He goes off script. He goes off script. The Passover meal is proceeding as normal, as usual, with all of these elaborate plans and liturgy. And then Jesus departs from that just for a bit. Verse 22, Jesus says, this Holds up the unleavened bread. This is my body. This is my body. Now what does he mean by that? Maybe if you're a disciple sitting around there, you're thinking, okay, Lord, you're going to have to fill in some of the details here. I mean, for starters, here's what he doesn't mean. Roman Catholics, if you grew up in a Roman Catholic church, perhaps have friends, they believe in this doctrine called transubstantiation and they believe that in the Lord's Supper it's, it's basically the, the bread and the wine actually become the literal 
body and blood of Jesus Christ. So as we gather for communion, which we're going to do in just a few minutes here, that we are literally eating the body of Christ and drinking the blood of Christ. Now just take a step back just for a moment. Let's recognize that Jesus here inaugurated this Last Supper while he was still with his disciples. Like as if Jesus knows his disciples better than they know themselves. So that they would not be confused as to what he's actually talking about. When he, when he talks about his body and his blood. The fact that Jesus was still with his disciples here, I think, in my mind at least, makes it very, very clear that Jesus is not speaking literally here. Obviously there's figurative language here. These are symbols of himself. They're not magically sort of transformed into something else. And that's actually really important for us to understand, brothers and sisters, because in just a few moments we will be taking communion, as is our custom. But every time we receive communion, the Lord's Supper, our attention is not, not primarily focused on the bread and the wine. Now, we happen to have really, really good bread. Praise God. And I think we have decent wine. But our attention is not focused and fixated on that. Our attention and focus is fixated on the Lord Jesus Christ who gives them to us. So the Lord's Supper is to focus our attention on Jesus, the true king. So what does Jesus mean then when he says, this is my body, verse 22? Holds up the unleavened bread. He is radically reinterpreting this unleavened bread then as a symbol for his body. Jesus is saying... I am the Passover lamb. This is my body that will be broken, sacrificed for you. My death will make possible a new and greater exodus so that you can be set free from your sin. That's the first announcement, reinterpretation. Here's the second one, verse 24. As the third cup of wine is about to be drunk, Jesus again injects new meaning into the meal. Verse 24, he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And again, there's such a richness here, brothers and sisters, to, to what's going on in this scene. Jesus holds up the cup, the redness of the wine there represented his atoning blood being poured out. That, that's an allusion to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. It speaks of the Messiah as the one who would be poured out, who would pour out his soul to death. And in Isaiah, it describes a bloody death. It describes a violent death. And many, many refer to those who would benefit, who would be blessed, who would receive salvation because of his atoning death. So his blood was the blood of the new covenant, 1 Corinthians 11. The old covenant of the law at Sinai was solemnized by the shedding of sacrificial blood, Exodus 24, verse 6. Jesus' blood sealed the new covenant. And that's important because that is the only way that men and women, boys and girls, that is the only way that you and me and our loved ones can possibly be saved. Our faith rests in him, in his atoning blood. And that fourth cup, that's to end the Passover celebration. Well, Jesus would not drink that cup until he first drank every last drop of the cup of God's wrath 
and justice that we deserve. So when we read in Scripture and we hear that he drank the cup for, that cup is ours to drink. But he's done it for us. So with the bones of the Passover lamb still on the table and the aroma of sacrifice in the air, brothers and sisters, Jesus' words here confirmed it's a prophetic declaration that indeed, John chapter 1, verse 29, he is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so in this sense, his last supper actually becomes the first supper because it inaugurates a whole new covenant which God, in which God made with us through Jesus Christ. So what does all that mean for us today then? We're, we're going to celebrate communion here in just a minute. Is communion something we just tack on to the end of every service? Seems appropriate. It's kind of a, a ritual. Are we to approach it unthinkingly? We're not quite sure what's going on, but we do it every week, so it seems to be important. No, we, we want to understand what it is that we're doing when we receive communion. What are we to learn? What are we to know as we come forward week in and week out. Three things as we close. There is a, again, it, it's, it's very, very rich here. There's a, there's a past, present, and future sense that I want us to focus on this morning. First, we look back. When we receive communion, we are looking back at Christ's sacrificial and self-giving love for us through his death on the cross. And we affirm as we look back then that Jesus' sacrifice is the only means by which God binds sinners to himself and through which we have deliverance from our sins. We need a savior. Jesus is our savior. Now, if you had been a slave, and let's say one day, maybe you lived in slavery for many, many years, and one day you had been gloriously set free, you would remember the day of your deliverance. You'd remember what you were wearing, you'd remember the circumstances, you would tell your kids, you would tell your grandkids, you'd tell anybody who would listen about the day of your deliverance, that day when you were finally and fully set free. Those who lived through the Holocaust, you may know of some, perhaps you've read certain accounts, that's, a lot of times that's, that's what happens there. They absolutely remember the day that they were set free, the, the time and the place and the circumstances surrounding their deliverance. Well, and the same is true for us then as we think about our spiritual deliverance. We are to continually, and in communion, we look back to remember the day of our deliverance, the day that we were rescued, we passed from death to life, from freedom, or from bondage of our sins to freedom to love Christ. And so we look back and we proclaim, Jesus has done this. Jesus has done this. He's rescued me. He's redeemed me from my sins. He's the Savior. I'm the one that needed salvation. So we look back. Second, we look forward. Communion is an opportunity for us to look forward. We, our hope is in his future return to consummate our salvation and to usher us into his presence forever. So communion really reminds us, brothers and sisters, really of the incompleteness of this Christian life. The Last Supper, as we just read, there was something unfinished about that. I mean, that last cup remained on the table. And in the same way, communion is an unfinished meal. We proclaim not our goodness, not our good luck, not our ability to, well, we were 
sort of moral people, and the Lord, I guess he saved us. No, we proclaim the Lord's death, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. How long? A couple weeks, a couple months. We proclaim his death until he comes again. So really, every time we take communion, we are eagerly looking forward to the final and complete consummation of the kingdom of God and the fulfillment of the promises of Jesus that he will come back and take us to be with him. So when we eat of this meal, we're supposed to eat with longing. It, in fact... It, it satisfies us, it feeds us, but then we long for more. We, it's a taste. We long for unhindered fellowship with Jesus. Do you, do you have a sense for what that might be like? We get a taste of it here, but it's simply that it's a taste. Because you sin and I sin, and we struggle. One day in heaven, there's going to be no sin. Amen? We're not going to struggle. We're going to have uninterrupted, unhindered fellowship with Jesus. So this meal leaves us longing for that day when that's going to happen. And brothers and sisters, in my own bouts of spiritual vertigo, oftentimes it's that future hope that provides a solid landing place for my own soul. It's not always going to be like this because Jesus has a plan. He's got the details all worked out. and We can trust him. Third and finally, we look to the present. As we take communion, we're sharing the bread and the cup that unites us as one body. That's one of the reasons why, brothers and sisters, it's not a free-for-all. Like, it's not like, hey, the communion's just up there. Come halfway through the first song. Come halfway through the sermon. Do whatever you want to do. Eat it in the parking lot. Drink it on your way home. Not at all. No, we're, we're the people of God. We share in this together. This, it's part of how we express our participation one with another as his people. So really what we're saying is here is when, when we receive communion, it's, it's a weekly acknowledgement that if I don't feast on Christ, I'm not going to make it. We have to feed. We have to receive spiritual nourishment from Christ because the truth is we won't make it apart from that. Now if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, the reality is Christ is to be as real, and I realize what I'm about to say here, so that's the disclaimer. Christ is to be as real to you spiritually in the same way that whatever meal you eat is as real physically. Just let that sink in. There's no life apart from Christ, in other words. That's how real he is. And for those of us who do belong to him by faith, praise God, but as we receive communion each and every week, that underscores the importance of our daily communion, our daily feasting on Christ, our daily going to him and saying, Lord, I need help. Feed me, fill me, satisfy me. So I love what the Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10, 17. Because we are one body, Paul says, and we share in one bread, Christ. Paul's got a very real sense here that as we share Christ together in communion in this meal, that we are in fact sharing our lives together. We are participating together in our shared life in Christ. And that's hugely encouraging. I mean, I, I'm always, in, literally every week, 
when I see you, my brothers and sisters, coming forward to receive communion, I'm always encouraged by that. It makes me love you more, makes me love Jesus more. God has seen fit to put us in a body, in a family where, yeah, we're, we're sharing Christ together. There's nothing more important that we can share together than our life in Christ. What a great privilege then it is to receive communion as we do. One of the very practical opportunities, brothers and sisters, as we think about preparing our hearts even for the Lord's Supper this morning, one of the very really important means of grace is, is that there's an opportunity here as we share a life together that we can actually pray for each other. And so we want to create some time and space here to do that. If you are with us at Central, then this will not be a surprise to you, but as elders, we've talked, prayed about this. And uh, so what we're going to do is, is as we receive communion here, we're going to have uh, elders and wives, a uh, couple over here, here, and then in the back. And our home group leaders and wives, this will be a regular pattern here, week in and week out. We're going to be here because it would be our joy to pray for you. Maybe there's something very specific going on in your heart and life this week. Something related to your family, your job, whatever it may be. We'll just trust the Lord for that. But it would be, it'd be our honor and privilege to, to bring those before the Lord on your behalf. So as you come forward and take the wine or the grape juice, piece of bread, maybe it's before you sit down. You can go here, here, or in the back. And there would be people there who would really consider it a joy and an honor to pray for you. You might have to push through some awkwardness. We're family. You might think, people are going to look at me. Well, maybe. But if you are the ones that are looking, then you know who to pray for. And it very well may be that it's not other people that you need to be concerned about right now. It's your own heart. So avail yourself of that opportunity. It's 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 just a very simple means of grace. But like I said, we would... Consider that a real joy to be able to pray with and for you. With that, let me pray, and then we'll enter into communion.